This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. I would be complex. I would be cool. They'd say I played the field before I found someone to commit to And that would be okay for me to do Every conquest I had made would make me more of a boss to you I'd be a fearless leader, I'd be an alpha type When everyone believes ya, what's that like? I'm so sick of running as fast as I can Get there quicker if I was a man And I'm so sick of them coming at me again Cause if I was a man Then I'd be the man I'd be the man I'd be the man Hey everybody and welcome back to History Off the Page That was Taylor Swift from her 2019 album Lover singing the song The Man, which of course is about this uh, imagination of what if she were a man, how much easier life would be. And the song is obviously really about political equality. And the idea, of course, that we're singing about gender relations, gender expectations, that we're thinking about in terms of equality, not just legal equality, but especially social and economic equality. You hear a lot of people talking about women only make so many uh, cents per dollar here in the United States today. You know, people talking about women being limited in terms of the glass ceiling and breaking the glass ceiling. So it's not surprising to hear, oh, there's a Taylor Swift song about that. And of course, it's catchy and it's, it's Taylor Swift. If you are from my generation, Generation X, you grew up in the 1980s, this idea of gender blending or crossing gendered boundaries, it's not just something that people talked about in terms of, of politics and economics, although they did, but it was also this sort of never-ending source of humor. There are so many movies from the 1980s and the 1990s where the whole plot is basically, what if we took this person from one gender and we had them pretend to be a different gender? If you want sort of a classic 1980s film that does this, think about a movie like Just One of the Guys, which basically it's from 1985. The plot is there's a teenage girl. She wants to be a journalist. And she can't get taken seriously because she looks too pretty. She looks too good. And so what on earth can she do? Well, she pretends to be a boy. She enrolls at a rival high school for two weeks. And of course, all her articles then become big hits. And there's a romantic comedy about it, right? She meets a boy, but then she's supposed to go on a date with a girl. And oh my God, what's she going to do? This whole thing of crossing gendered lines is funny. If teen comedies aren't your thing... We can go a couple years earlier to a 1983 movie called Yentl. Those of you that are Barbara Streisand fans, you'll, of course, know Yentl. Basically, she's growing up in a small town in Poland. Uh, Her father is, I believe, a rabbi. She's really into religion, even though she's not supposed to study it. And then her father dies, and she goes, oh, what am I going to do? I want to go 
to yeshiva, I want to become a rabbi, even though I'm not supposed to because I'm a woman. So what would happen if I cross-dress and I am a woman, I, and I enter a man's world, I start acting like a man, what a great movie plot, ha, ha, ha. So there's a long history of this idea of, again, crossing gender boundaries, trading gender identities. That's not just about equality, but it's also about humor. But what if I told you we could make this type of movie, but it was a horror movie? Or what if I said we were going to write a book or a novel, but it's not meant to be entertaining in a fun sort of way, and it's not really even meant to make a, a kind of equality statement or call but this is a horror film, or this is a horror book. This is a scary genre. What if women started acting like men? What would happen to society? As you probably won't be surprised to know, it's not a hypothetical. In 1922, the French novelist Victor Marguerite released a novel called La Garçonne, which, so in French, garçon means boy, like a little boy is a garçon. And to feminize something, you basically add an E to the end of it because it's a gendered language. So words are either masculine or feminine. So basically, he takes garçon, he feminizes it, la garçonne, and it kind of roughly translates to the tomboy. It's kind of the closest approximation that would make sense to us today. Now, the story revolves around this young woman named Monique Lerbier who experiences a radical trauma when she discovers that her fiancé has been cheating on her. How many movies or books start with some premise of you're a woman, you're in love, everything seems fine, and then all of a sudden you find out your spouse is cheating on you and it rocks your world and it makes you kind of, you know, everything starts to, to, to be reevaluated. Of course, I, I make all these movie references. A lot come from the 1980s or early 1990s. How about Thelma and Louise? If you have, were alive during this period, very classic sort of um, story of these two women, and one is jaded, and, and she's limited by her husband, and she's kept down and treated unequally, and then finally they just say, screw it, let's start acting like men, let's do whatever we want. And so this story, La Garçon, uh, Monique Lerbier, basically starts to do this, but in the 1920s in this book. She decides to reject society's expectations for female behavior, becoming increasingly masculine as the story wears on. How do we act masculine? Well, for one, we start wearing short skirts and even pants or bloomers. Back in the 1920s, really basically before World War II or even really the 1950s, the idea that women would wear pants is seen as taboo. Pants are what men wear. Skirts are what women wear. And we need a very clear distinction because we don't want anyone getting confused about what someone's gender is. Again, to make another 80s cultural reference, there used to be this great skit on Saturday Night Live called Pat. And Pat was this person that was kind of androgynous. You couldn't tell if Pat was a man or a woman, kind of had a sort of pudgy body. You know, the voice was kind of in, in between. And Pat never really said anything like that, that identified their gender. And so this was a skit that they did multiple times, right? Ha, 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 we can't tell what's Pat's gender. Of course, today, people go, well, you know, that's offensive. The humor wouldn't make sense. But this is kind of what, again, Lerbier starts to do. She starts blending and crossing gender boundaries 
in a fictional way in the 1920s. She dances, she plays sports, she even drives a car. Women driving? Come on, that's crazy. In the end, she also has several romantic encounters with women as well as men. Even the way she shakes hands becomes more firm and assertive. You, in your course of your life, you may have met someone who's uh, kind of a, thinks of themselves as a very manly man. They want to intimidate you. Maybe they're kind of an asshole. And, you know, when they go to shake your hand, they try to crush it to show you how strong and manly they are. Well, that's what Larabier starts doing, right? She becomes a very masculine, firm handshake. Now, of course, all of these transgressions are literally seen as transgressions. They violate existing gender norms and expectations about the way women were supposed to act and about the way that men are supposed to act. Women in the 1920s in European society are supposed to be largely passive. They're supposed to be deferential to authority. And they're supposed to be focused on things that are related to the domestic sphere. Motherhood, cooking, cleaning, religion, education, nursing, taking care of people. Now, the author of this story, which again was a man named Victor Marguerite, he had to get this book by the French censors. And so he does what all good sort of radical authors do, which is you write this radical story, and then at the end you kind of slip in something that makes it seem more acceptable. So in the end, Lerbier does kind of come back to regain her quote-unquote sanity. She gets married, um, and, you know, oh, wink, wink, you know, this isn't so bad. But the story is so sensational, so ridiculous, so outrageous, that Marguerite is actually stripped of a medal from the Legion of Honor that he had been given. Right? He is seen as such an outcast, as so radical, as writing such a taboo book, that they take away his medal. Now, today, some people would say, well, that's not so bad. You lost some you know, honorarium. Who cares? You got to be famous. Right? Historians are still writing about this 100 years later. This is not an obscure book if you're someone that studies European gender, especially in the 1920s. And Scandal turns this book, La Garçon, into a universal bestseller. It burns through its early print runs at the rate of about 10,000 copies per week. 10,000 copies per week. By 1929, it had been translated into over a dozen languages and sold more than a million copies. Taylor Swift, eat your heart out, right? Maybe not. Taylor Swift, she sells pretty good. She probably has this beat. But the key point is that Lerbier was not just a figment of Marguerite's imagination. Rather, she's a fictional composite of a very real phenomenon taking place around the time of the First World War. And this is the emergence of what we as historians refer to as the quote-unquote new woman. Unlike her more reserved Victorian or Wilhelmine mother or auntie, basically women living at the end of the 19th century, the new woman of the 1920s crosses gender lines and behaves like Lerbier in a masculine manner. The new woman for the first time is going to look in the mirror and say, I don't want to look like I have a big chest. I don't want to look like I have wide hips because the feminine ideal of beauty here is to be a mother and to physically look like I'm someone that can have a lot of babies. 
the new feminine ideal of the 1920s is going to be slender and athletic. The woman of the 1920s is going to be strong. She's going to be physically fit. She is going to also embrace rather than hide her erotic side, her sexual side. The idea, and we'll talk about this, the idea in the 1920s that women desire sex is something that is relatively new, or at least it's relatively new that that people acknowledge it publicly and think about it publicly. Obviously, women have been wanting to have sex as long as there have been women, just as men have. This new woman also smokes cigarettes, which cigarettes, previously you had pipes, you had cigars, so cigarette is a, is a diminutization of cigar, so it is a little bit more feminine, but still the idea of women smoking, this is new. I mentioned that these new women wear pants or bloomers instead of just walking around in skirts all the time. Why? What's the difference? Why would it matter? Well, if you've ever been out trying to wear a dress, dresses are less practical, one could say, for doing athletic things. Again, to make another movie reference, uh, if you've ever seen A League of Their Own, which is about women playing baseball in the 1940s, they're forced to kind of play baseball in skirts. And if you think about all the sliding going on, playing in a skirt, trying to play soccer in a skirt, that doesn't seem very comfortable. I know field hockey is played in, in skirts, so that's kind of going off on a tangent here. But basically, it's a lot easier to go around in pants. They're more practical. And so women in the 1920s begin being public and being public without men around in a much more prominent way. And so the idea of wearing pants, you know, if you're working in a factory, you're going to wear a skirt. The idea of wearing pants makes more sense. Another thing about this new woman is she lives for her own pleasure rather than those of her family. Now today, to say, well, women, you should first think about your families— you do actually still get people saying this, but you also have a lot of people that would say, well, women should also be able to think about themselves. The idea that a woman is thinking about, I feel like having ice cream for dessert tonight, that doesn't seem so radical, right? But in the 1920s, again, this is at least publicly, culturally somewhat new. Theoretically, women are supposed to be thinking about their families, their fathers, their husbands, their children, those relationships are supposed to matter more than her own individuality. The new woman also holds her own opinions. And in countries where this now becomes possible, she even does something as radical as voting. The idea that a woman might have something to say about the community she lives in is relatively new right after World War I. Now, another thing that we're going to talk about here that, that often gets left out of these stories of gender transformations, especially in the 1920s, is that women begin to gain power not just by you know saying, okay, we want legal equality, we want political equality, but they also start to gain economic power because the economy approves, you have more women moving into the middle class, into sort of even upper middle class, and those women start to exercise financial power. They start to say, I want to buy something, not because we need it, but because I feel like it, because I like it, because it brings me, as a woman, pleasure. And so this new woman starts shopping. She starts buying things that she wants 
rather than things that her family needs. A couple other things just to kind of wrap up this introductory list. She has sex whenever and with whomever she pleased. It's not just the idea that she can only have sex with her husband in order to make babies. The idea that a husband and wife could have sex because they like it, because it's fun, that suddenly becomes something that is more and more socially acceptable. The idea that women are having premarital sex becomes not completely acceptable, but more acceptable than it had been. So like Monique Lherbier, in all these ways, the new woman begins to shock contemporaries by crossing gender boundaries, opening and experiencing new freedoms for women all across the European continent. So in today's episode, we'll talk about some real women who actually do this, like Coco Chanel, the uh, famous inventor of the little black dress and Chanel number no. five. And these women embody the spirit of the new woman. And then we'll also examine why and how this came about. Now, like many of the phenomena that we've been talking about in these last series of, of podcast episodes that we've done in the 1920s, these revolutions in gender expectations do not suddenly begin in 1918. It's not like World War I ends and then suddenly women go, hey, we should start acting differently. Right? There are historical causes behind these transformations of gender. And if you're talking about transformations in gender and expectations, I know a lot of times people get wrapped up in this idea of, well, you know, men have been men and women have been women for thousands of years. And then the 1960s, these women start burning their bras and everything changes. You're not going to be surprised by this. The story is, of course, more complicated than that. And gender relations and gender expectations have been constantly evolving over the course of the centuries, right? It's not the same in the 16th century as it was in the 8th century as it will be in the 19th century. Now, I wish we had more time because I'd love to go back into a deep dive into this. I actually wrote out about 50 minutes worth of, of talking about gender transformations in the 19th century. Then I realized this is going to be another one of those like two and a half hour long podcasts. We don't want to do that. So I'm basically just going to say that there are some fascinating transformations that happen in the 19th century, especially due to industrialization. You have women that suddenly start leaving their families in the countryside. They come into cities. They're single. They start selling their labor as opposed to just being part of a family. And so that begins to change gender relations somewhat. You also have at the same time this kind of rise of, of what we would call the middle class family or the bourgeois family. And what's really interesting about that is that the, the middle class family prizes the nuclear family. The middle class family is mom and dad and 2.3 kids. And in the 19th century, it's a bunch of servants as opposed to dogs. But the key point is that in the nuclear family, the roles of mom and dad take on increasing importance. So what it means to be a woman actually becomes more sort of circumscribed by these expectations about here's the home. You need to make sure that the home is a place of respite, a place where uh, the, the man of the household can come home after you know, a hard day's work and relax. This is kind of new. And then the idea of motherhood, right? Obviously, women have been associated with motherhood for a long time, but the idea that, that middle-class mom needs to be first and foremost a mother becomes emphasized in the 19th century. Now, there's more to this story than just the idea that, well, you know, men decided to keep women down and the patriarchy and, and you know, just it was, it was men being mean to women. 
there are, again, sociological causes for this. And, and it's more the idea of what women were in the 19th century is more than just, hey, just lock her in the house and she should just be a servant to you. Women are not only expected to become mothers, but they're also in the middle class family. They're expected to basically run the family, run the household, to maintain order in a society that is full of change, right? To manage household expenses, especially in the 19th century. The idea that the man comes home from working and he just gives his money that he earned and he gets the paycheck. He should just come home and give it to his wife because the danger is he's going to take it and go to the pub and drink it away. So women, especially in middle-class families, actually have a pretty decent amount of power in the 19th century because they are managing the household budget, because they have domestic servants that they are literally in charge of and bossing around all day. Now, another part of this idea of maintaining order in society revolves around questions of emotions. Men in the 19th century and into the 20th century are supposed to be unemotional. The idea that a man has become emotional, the idea that a man is someone who cries, is seen as a sign of weakness, right? You want someone like John Wayne or Humphrey Bogart, um, you know, where they come in and they say, oh my God, your whole family just got killed. And, you know, Humphrey Bogart just kind of goes, well, that's too bad. Now I'm going to go and and keep doing what I'm doing or I'm going to avenge them, but I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to get emotional. So there's huge taboos on the idea of men becoming emotional in the 19th century. As part of this idea of trying to keep men from getting emotional so they stay focused on duty and order and, and being functional authorities, the idea is you don't want them to become highly sexualized. Men are already kind of sexual, so you don't want to distract them by flirting with them, by by women being publicly sexual beings. And so another side of that 19th century ideal of gender that, that people can talk about is the idea that women are supposed to kind of remain reserved, right? Why are women so covered up in the 19th century? Part of it is because the idea of we don't want to display the body, we don't want to, do, to bring sexuality or the potential for sex into any conversation because it'll drive men crazy. And if they get crazy, then they'll stop being the authority figures that society is built on. So again, I'm not trying to say that there's equality, quite the opposite. But what I'm trying to tell you is these gendered relations exist for reasons. They exist because people have beliefs about how it would affect society if you move towards more equality. And in fact... If you went back and talked to the people of the time period, most people would say equality between the sexes is a bad thing. Even women would say, we don't really want equality between the sexes because the two groups have different roles. And if their roles aren't clearly defined, if we start seeing chaos, anarchy, well, then what happens to society? So it's not surprising if you kind of put yourself in this mindset to go back to the time before the 1890s And to notice that women basically hold very few, if any, voting rights. There are often restrictions on women's financial rights. We'll talk about this in a second. But the idea that a woman could inherit property, that she could own a business. In some countries, the idea that if a woman signs a contract and she's married, that that contract has any validity without her husband signing it as well. This is the way things were before the 1890s, pretty much in every country in Europe. But again, 
This isn't seen by most contemporaries as a state of inequality and we need to fix it because equality is the goal. The inequality is seen as a natural or a proper condition. And there are plenty of women, by the way, who not only sort of defend this, but reinforce it, who advocate it, who teach it. You know, how do women learn to be women? It's usually not because daddy said do this or that. It's usually because they see what their moms do or their sisters or grandma, right? They look up to other women just the same way that, you know, how do little boys often learn to become men? They look up at other men around them and say, these are my role models. These are who I want to be. I'm not going to go into a long tangent about this, but if you're curious about what life was like for women in the middle of the 19th century, Google Isabella Beaton's Book of Household Management. This is a book that was written in 1861 for new housewives, for Victorian brides, and it's basically like a stereo manual, except it's how to run a marriage and how to run a household. Now, I show this to my students all the time, and they kind of gasp at it, and, oh my God, I can't believe she said that. I can't believe, uh, you know, you did that she said do this. But if you put yourself in the position of a young housewife in the 1860s or 1870s, you are suddenly thrust into a position of authority, right? You do have servants. You are in charge of the household. You do run the, the household budget. There's a lot of expectations about how you're supposed to behave and what you're supposed to do. But there's no internet. There's no movies. How am I supposed to know as a woman, especially young, you know, 20 years old, how am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to do? My husband that I married is 30, 35, 40 years old. He's going to have expectations about me. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And so this book by Isabella Beaton is not some like repressive, you know, here's this manual, you must learn to do these things, slave. By a lot of women, it is empowerment. It is, oh, okay, here's the path forward. Here are the expectations about me and who I'm supposed to be. And here's how I can get there. So again, while today's feminists would probably look down on it, for contemporaries, it's seen as quite helpful and, again, dare I say, empowering. Okay, as we have this kind of system or these conditions that are set up, these expectations that are deeply unequal, there are some cultural critics who argue in the late 18th century and the early 19th century that women should have more political and economic equality. We don't have time to go into all the names, as I said. I, I could spend an hour on this alone, um, if not more time. But you have people like the author Daniel Defoe. Daniel Defoe, writing at the end of the 18th century, he uh, pens this kind of essay and he says, hey, we should be educating women. The idea that women don't need a formal education, that doesn't make any sense. Women are people too. Women, they can think as well as men. Uh, so he makes this very impassionate argument that calls for greater equality in the sphere of education. Another name to throw out there would be Olympe de Gouges. De Gouges was basically a French revolutionary. She was uh, very passionate, very articulate. And as she watches the initial stages of the French Revolution take place, she says, ha, huh, that's interesting. You have this whole declaration of the rights of man, but where do women fit into the picture? Women are people too. Why don't women get political equality? Why don't women have the same rights as these men, these citizens within the French 
state. And so she calls for more political equality. Um, unfortunately, she, uh, she doesn't have things work out too well with her, and she is executed in the 1790s. Mary Wollstonecraft, another name that we could throw out there as an early, quote-unquote, feminist. So by the middle of the 19th century, you do start to see several national movements in countries such as the United Kingdom, the United States, France, etc., where women call for greater social and political equality. Now, socially, this is a bit different from the feminism of the 1960s. If you start thinking about feminists from the 1960s, if you Google the term, if you um, you start reading Simone de Beauvoir or uh, people like that, what you're going to find is there's a lot of criticism, not of necessarily the legal situation, but especially of the, the sort of social and economic standards. Women are treated differently than men. Again, I hate to keep making movie references, but if you think about something like 9 to 5 with uh, Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin and Dabney Coleman, uh, you know, this idea that, well, women are just secretaries and, of course, men should just hit on them all day and, you know, they really can't think for themselves, right? This kind of, this, this double standard that women are treated with is at the core of 1960s feminism. The other big thing that goes into that bucket, of course, is sexual politics, um, access to abortion, access to contraception. These are huge, huge debates in the 1960s that to some extent are still uh, reverberating today. But in the 19th century, women's interests were understood more in terms of securing her ability to raise a healthy family. And so these early feminists are not just talking about something like suffrage, the idea that women should be granted the right to vote, but they're also talking about things like the temperance movement. The temperance movement says, let's get rid of alcohol. All these drunk men are wasting the money of their families. They're beating their wives. They're being bad fathers. Let's clean up society. Let's get rid of alcohol. That is a woman's issue. They also call for things like better access to higher education and also better social services. It's not the idea of, again, sort of 60s, 70s contemporary feminism where you'd say, well, women and men should be completely equal. They should be able to, to, you know, kind of move across gender boundaries without any restrictions. It's more the idea that women should be free to lean into the gendered expectations of the period. In other words, we don't want women to start saying, well, what if I wasn't a mother? What if I don't want to be a mother? We want to make it easier for women to be mothers. We want to help their experience of motherhood be more successful. And so across the 19th century, you have the growth of these sort of political movements, these reform movements. Women are very much involved in abolitionism, trying to get rid of slavery. You have people like the, uh, the famous British philosopher John Stuart Mill, who starts saying, yeah, women deserve more political equality. Nevertheless, we have very slow movement across the 19th century. It is only in 1882, for example, in the UK, that British women win the right to own property independently of their husbands. And in France, this is going to blow your minds, in France until 1907, if a woman had a job and she made money from it, she did not control her salary. Her husband was the one who kind of collected her salary and, and controlled it 
Although in, in theory, the idea is that he then gives all that back to her because she's managing the household budget. In terms of the franchise, the idea of women being able to vote, again, very, very slow progress here. In some countries like Britain and Sweden, women do win the right to participate in municipal elections, in local elections in the 1860s, but in most countries, women are not voting at all. And even then, in the United States, by comparison, women only received the right to vote nationally in 1919. Before 1919, Utah and Wyoming are the only states that allow women to participate in elections, and of course, those are state-level elections. So again, the 19th century sees some commentary about it, sees some uh, political organization, but not a ton, and it doesn't seem to be very effective. Change comes extremely slowly. Now, to become more effective, women that desired political and legal equality, borrow a page from the unions. They say, we need to form international associations. There's strength in numbers. Let's band together. Let's figure out what works best. And so you get these really interesting international networks developing in the 1890s and the early 1900s between women from different countries, sharing advice, sharing strategies, sharing experiences. Those of you that are familiar with American history, You may be familiar with the names Caddy Stanton, or more so Susan B. Anthony. Uh, Both of them actually traveled to Europe in the 1880s and helped found the International Council of Women in 1888. Now again, you're seeing more interest here. You're seeing more sort of, of passion, more sort of of a public presence of the idea of women calling for equality. But in terms of real change, there tends to be very little. And so by 1900, you start to see the emergence of a more militant set of women who call for something called direct action in order to secure greater equality. Direct action is the idea that I am not going to wait for legislatures to change things. I'm not going to petition my my pastor or my parish priest and try to get the church or the synagogue or the mosque to try to change some behaviors. I am going to use direct action I am going to take matters into my own hands to force the change that I want to see. This becomes a big deal in the 1960s and 70s, of course, with the countercultural revolution, but it also exists to a far smaller degree in this first wave of early feminists. And the most important name to note here is a suffragette named Emmeline Pankhurst, who was a woman from Manchester, England, and she helps found the Women's Social and Political Union, in 1903. Now, their unofficial motto is, quote, deeds, not words, end quote, which is a great philosophy, right? The idea, okay, we sit around, we talk about stuff, we've been talking about it for 100 years, doesn't accomplish anything, let us change things ourselves. And so again, they turn to direct action, and they undertake some things that probably would shock you, and maybe even would have shocked some of the, the, the sort of hardcore 60s um, protesters or even hippies, right? They turn violent. They start smashing windows. They see a politician and they start heckling them. Some of you may be familiar with the um, the organization Code Pink, which kind of does this in the early 2000s. And, and to some extent, they're still around today. But this idea that, oh, there's a politician. They're kind of misogynistic uh, in their words. Let's throw pink balloons at them. Right? This is something people would, would get today. Well, they do stuff like this to some extent in 
the early 20th century, right? Women go on hunger strikes. Women even commit arson in the name of more gender equality. And in perhaps the most infamous act of defiance takes place in 1913, right on the eve of the war. You have a 40-year-old woman named Emily Davidson, and she wants to protest gender inequality and the lack of women's rights. And so she goes to the Epsom Derby, where the king has one of his favorite horses racing. And you're thinking about sort of pre-World War I, what does the aristocracy do? What do the wealthy do? Well, of course, they go to the horse races. They own horses. It's a very kind of haughty, you know, fancy thing to do. She runs into the middle of the race and is trampled by the king's horse at the 1913 Epsom Derby. It is a shocking act of protest. And it generates all this kind of interest and enthusiasm in the cause of women's suffrage. Okay, so you have this building pressure leading into the outbreak of World War I. Now, the war, of course, is going to accelerate many of these changes and is going to kind of allow cracks, if you will, in the ice and, and allow some of, the, of, the, of this uh, idea of legal and political equality, but also social equality, to finally begin to break through. And as I said, the war itself is a catalyst for change. One of the big things that happens here is that it is going to pull millions of women out of the domestic sphere, out of their homes where they had been uh, kind of focused on and concentrating, and bring them into the workplace. And it's kind of interesting because the reason that this happens isn't just, well, you know, we need people in the factories, we need bodies, we need labor. They actually think about gender relations and the idea that women are, are not going to be working long-term in factories is what enables them to work in factories and will open the door to them working long-term in factories. Let me explain this, I guess, a little bit more clearly. In many countries, once the war happens, once you get through the initial couple of weeks and it, it's apparent this is going to be a long war, you need to call up reserves. You need to start getting older soldiers who are still working in the economy. You've got to bring them out of the factories, get them into the army, mobilize them. However, it's understood that this is not going to be a generational long war. At some point, the war will end, and those men are going to want to go back to their jobs in the factories. You know, many of them had good, high-paying jobs. So how do you assuage that soldier? You don't want the guy that's being told, okay, go over the top and risk your life for your country. You don't want him going, oh, shit, what if I lose my job back home? I, I won't get it back. What if I have to be unemployed after this war is over? You want him thinking about fighting in the war. And so in many countries, especially countries like France, the initial instinct is to say, well, if that guy that we just pulled out of the factory, if he has a wife, if he has a sister, maybe she could come and work while he's away, and then naturally she's going to want to go back to the home, going back to being domestic after he comes home, right? And as soon as he's demobilized, she's going to be freed up to go home or she's going to want to go home. So there's a nice seamless transition to the post-war period that's supposed to happen there. So again, this idea is that women will move into these positions temporarily because they are seen as people that will only be there temporarily. However, once you get women working in positions of public authority and being very effective at it, 
the rationale that, well, women, you know, aren't capable intellectually of working in a bank or of being a, a you know, some sort of manager or, or of working in a factory or driving a car, right? All these kind of stereotypes, they, they kind of fall apart. They don't, they work. So women during World War I, all over Europe, begin working in positions of public authority. Again, they start being bank tellers. They start working on the railways. They work in retail. They work as trolley drivers. And you might not say, well, okay, driving a taxi cab, is, that doesn't sound like such a position of authority. It's not a job that a lot of people would like to do. But there's a lot of elements of driving where you are supervising yourself. You are very public. You are, you know, you have to problem solve, figure out how to get from A to B before you have uh, GPS, obviously. And so, again, these kind of the, the idea that women can't be working in public positions, that starts to fall apart a little bit because they are working in these places. Even in something like the armaments factories, right? The heaviest of heavy labors, right? How are you going to have women working in a big factory? Don't you need big, burly coal miner men? Well, over 400,000 women work in the French armament industry during World War I. And they often perform the same type of labor that only men had done previously. And again, this is something that happens. It's not the same in every country. There are different degrees of it. But it is, it is something that is pretty much universally experienced during World War I. One could argue German women are a little less active in the, in the war effort in terms of servicing and participating in the economy. British women tend to be a little bit more involved in it. Um, we mentioned Emmeline Pankhurst earlier in the podcast. Guess what happens to Emmeline Pankhurst? Right? Isn't she? She's a radical. She you know, wants to bring it all down. What's going to happen? Emmeline Pankhurst says, whoa, we've got to put this stuff on hold, put our agitation on hold. We need to be militant for the nation against the Germans. She says, I don't just want to be in an auxiliary service. I don't want to just chip in at the factory. I want to serve. I want to fight. I want to do the same thing that men do. And so she actually petitioned for the right to serve. And in the end, thousands of British women would find places to contribute to the British war effort. Now, as these shifts occurred, social commentators had a variety of reactions. It won't surprise you. We've been talking about modernism. We've been talking about all this boundary breaking going on. And I said that, well, you know, as this is going on, there's almost always a group that says, wait a minute, this is problematic. This is dangerous. What's going to happen here? And so you have that as well. During the war, there are people who say, look, you know, this is really bad. We have women that are kind of, quote unquote, acting like men. We can't have women acting like men. If women start acting like men, then the whole gendered system falls apart. The whole idea of authority falls apart. You get chaos. You get anarchy. What on earth is going to happen? Now, what's more interesting is that you have people that are concerned about it. And the way that they kind of find a way to make it acceptable is discursive. So the way that you talk about what the women are doing there, you, you effeminize the language of it. So women working in a steel plant aren't, you know, big, burly women sweating and toiling all day and, you know, wow, and seeming like really burlesque. Women in a steel factory, women in an arms factory, they string artillery shells together like pearls. They knit steel beams. You look at posters of women from the era, you know, recruiting posters or kind of motivational posters. The women in the posters are either thinking about men 
or they're working in what we might call effeminate positions or gendered positions such as nurses, cooks, or aid workers. Why nurses? Well, what do nurses do? Nurses are nurturing. Nurses care for people. Nurses act almost like a surrogate mother in some ways. And so up until very recently, even the year 2000, right, the idea that uh, you could have a male nurse was seen as something that was weird. If you watch um, the Ben Stiller comedy, Meet the Parents, right, what is the father, Robert De Niro? Oh, he's a CIA agent. You know, he's, he's a you know, soldier, you know, military, intelligence operative, you know, manly man. What is Ben Stiller? Oh, I'm a male nurse. Male nurse. What, you're a man and you you take care of people? You have feelings? Ah, funny comedy, right? Today, the idea of being a male nurse isn't a big deal. But at that time, it again was seen as being very gendered, right? Being a cook. Being a cook is seen as something that is acceptable for women because what are you doing? You're performing a, a otherwise domestic function. You're just doing it for everybody in the army or, uh, or other places. As the strain of war continues to be felt, including after its conclusion, the need for highly skilled workers continues to open new paths for women. Think about it for a moment. What happens during World War I? Well, you have a lot of people killed. You have a lot of people maimed. Okay, and those are vast, vast majority are obviously men because those are the soldiers. You still need doctors. You still need you still need engineers to help build society, and you have fewer men to be able to make that happen. And so part of what happens after World War I is new career paths. The, the gates, there's, there's cracks in the glass ceiling, so to speak, right? There's a couple women that start being able to do this because society needs them. So it's not the 1960s or the 1980s or the 2000s or even, you know, maybe we're not even there, you think. But more and more careers that were previously exclusively reserved for men become somewhat open towards women. But there's also a really important, deeper level, a more fundamental level of change that is going on here. And that is basically that because so many men are away at the front, because so many women have to go out and start functioning publicly, not just as workers, but publicly going out and doing things on their own, the idea of women being independent, functionally independent of men, becomes lived experience or becomes a reality. We're talking about women working outside the home, but also going out in public. You know, when, when there's a legal document that needs to be filed, when the business has to deposit money at the bank, right, women are going to start doing that in a way that they didn't do before. And so as women emerged from the Great War in 1919, their mindsets, maybe not universally, but for many women, especially in urban areas, their mindset is, I can function on my own. I do not just have to be a part of this larger family unit. I can have desires of my own, right? If I am just there by myself and I think, what do I want to eat tonight? I don't need to worry about the kids. I don't need to worry about making my husband happy. I can actually think about what would make me happy for a change. And so what the war does, among other things, is it gives millions and millions of women 
the confidence that they can function as individuals in society independently of men. Finally, there's one last aspect of the war that's pretty crucial and that really changes expectations uh, about women and and behavior, um, and that's related to sex itself. On the one hand, it's, it's pretty obvious that when you have a war, especially for the soldiers, the idea that I might die tomorrow, you know, the, the chances that someone is going to have sex or take a, a chance on sex or maybe sex outside of the normal sort of pattern of, of, um, of a relationship, that makes more sense, right? The idea that, well, someone's diagnosed with terminal cancer, they have six weeks to live, they go to a bar and they hook up with somebody, that doesn't seem that surprising to us today because the, the, the proximity of death changes the equation, right? If you want a, a kind of another movie reference, and I know I'm just dropping these left and right today, think about the movie Independence Day, uh, where these, um, these aliens are invading. It looks like the world is ending, and there's these teenagers, and one of the teenagers looks at the other one and says, this could be our last night on Earth. You don't want to die a virgin, do you? Right, and so, you know, that, that idea of, of the proximity of death generating an, an, a desire for more sex and more sexuality, not surprising to us. However, and this is, this is true, this takes place on the front, right? There are lots of men having sex outside of wedlock. There are lots of prostitutes. The army actually encourages the prostitutes because they want to regulate them, make sure they're not spreading venereal disease. We also do have, during World War I, an explosion in homosexual relations. So many men serving together, right? If you looked at studies of prison, there's more gay sex that goes on in prison because there's just no women around, or at least uh, the populations tend to be segregated. We're also talking about an environment where, you know, people are less judging, people are less, you know, people don't know you as well. The, the sort of normal inhibitions get taken away. Um, and so there's a lot more sex that happens during World War I outside the bonds of marriage. And if you don't believe me, check out the statistics for illegitimate births. They skyrocket during the war years because, again, people are having more sex outside of marriage. Now, obviously, 1919 is not the first time that anyone, and especially women, begin having affairs, right? Affairs have probably existed as long as there have been marriages, especially because marriage until relatively recently, historically speaking, was not based on love. It was an economic relationship. It was often uh, negotiated between the families. But one of the things that will come out of this is the idea that women's sexuality and happiness matters. There is, as we'll see in just a second, a real enthusiasm for psychology that kind of happens right in the run-up to World War I. Think about somebody like Sigmund Freud, for example. And after the war is over, people are going to start saying, Hmm, let's start thinking about these women who many of whom or some of whom were just having sex outside of marriage. Maybe we should think about their desires and their needs as well. Now, all these sort of strands come together in the immediate post-war environment to create some pretty radical changes. And the state itself plays a key role in this because, let's face it, the conditions engendered by the war, the sheer sense of death and destruction, it affects the idea of the state itself. The state can no longer take a sort of classical liberal approach to the idea of marriage and reproduction, 
where if you asked most libertarians today, they say, well, what should the state's position on, on you know, marriage be? What should the state's position on, on adultery be? They'd say that the state shouldn't have one. You know, if people are religious, let the, let the churches, let the synagogues, the mosques, et cetera, let that work it out. But the state shouldn't really be involved in the process of marriage. After World War I, however, the state needs to become more involved in regulating, but especially also in supporting marriage because you need birth rates to rise. So many countries had lost hundreds of thousands or even millions of men. If you want to recover from that, you need kids. So you have to start supporting and intervening in families from the state perspective. And this isn't just some sort of political game. Several states, such as the Weimar Republic in Germany or Ireland after it becomes independent, they actually incorporate the idea of the family into their constitutions, noting that, quote, marriage is the foundation of family life and of the constitution. So marriage is not just a religious issue, it is a social issue, and the state after the 1920s is going to try to reinforce it. As a result, the immediate post-war era features an increasingly interventionist state that sought to support the growth of families. In Germany, the Weimar and later Nazi states built upon the already existent social welfare system to encourage people to have children. In the UK, the number of child welfare centers was doubled. The Maternity and Child Welfare Act was passed in 1918, followed by the establishment of a Ministry of Health the next year. In short, we talked earlier about 19th century feminism and how part of that feminism was directed not towards greater equality, but towards the idea of supporting women as mothers to make them more successful or to make it easier to be a mother. Well, these efforts continue after 1919, and they tend to be highly successful. In most European countries, infant mortality will drop by about 50% in the immediate post-war period. Many countries will pass legislation increasing or introducing maternity leave. What a concept. A woman has a baby, and if she's got a job, maybe we should spend a little bit of money to allow her to spend some time at home with her child, not have her lose her job as a result. At the same time, many states also took a more active approach to the politics of reproduction, banning or limiting the use of contraception, and banning criminalizing, or even in some cases increasing the penalty, for abortion. If you are in France and you are thinking about demographic competition with Germany, and we've just suffered through World War I, the idea that anyone is going to terminate a pregnancy is going to become highly problematic. Now, another way that all of these strands come together, of course, is the big change, which many historians usually point to, or even in, in the popular mood, which is the introduction of suffrage. The idea that women, after all these years uh, fighting for equality, fighting for a kind of political voice, that women will finally win the right to vote. In the UK, it is in February of 1918, during the closing months of World War I, although before people really realized that the war was about to end, it is only in February of 1918 that British women over the age of 30 are awarded the right to vote. Now, there's an asterisk on this because I said over the age of 30. Men don't have to wait that long. 
So it's not actually until 1928 that they start to say, actually, everybody should be able to vote at the same age without property requirements. So when we talk about like real formal democracy, we're really only talking about 1928 for the UK. That's pretty crazy if you think about it. Most European countries in the interwar period will grant women the right to vote. Two that don't are France and Italy. France, there's a a movement to do it. It comes up for a vote. There's a lot of debates. Um, Basically, part of the problem is that in France, you have people that are defined as active citizens and people that are defined as passive citizens. And women are defined as passive citizens until 1944. Now, there are other changes that take place as well. Uh, We see more equality in terms of living within the marriage. We already saw some changes here where we said, well, okay, uh, women have the right to own property. Women have the right to inherit. We start to see more and more of these changes that take place after 1918. In France, the idea that a woman's signature would be valid on a contract, that is only after World War I that that gets approved. The idea that a woman can request a divorce, it's not just the man. That is a post-World War I development. Of course, it depends, again, what country you're talking about. Uh, In the 1920s in Scandinavia, laws governing marriage essentially treat men and women equally. So the Scandinavians, of course, always seem to be very advanced, very progressive, if you like that term. Um, In other countries, change comes a little bit slower. In 1938, the French pass a law giving women the right to sign a contract without their husband's consent. Again, this all seems very ghastly to us today, but at the time, it's part of this sort of evolving sense of gender expectations that people mostly assume were inherently unequal, that they were supposed to be, that they were naturally unequal. And so it's really only in the 1960s and 70s that we're going to see this, again, kind of second wave feminism break through. Now, so far, we've talked a lot about politics because politics and rights are, of course, important. But at the same time, they only mean so much. Think about this for a second. How much of your life is actually consumed by politics? How much time do you actually spend doing politics, voting, campaigning? If you work for uh, a political office, you know, you're the assistant DA, uh, you're an intern, you know, in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I get it. Your life is about politics. But most of us, most ordinary people, Our lives are not wrapped up in doing the actual job of formal politics. It actually consumes very little of our time. And so while it's important to talk about suffrage and this sort of early feminism and its its big victories about people like Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and Emmeline Pankhurst, let's talk about the changes that actually most women feel in their daily lives after World War I. And there's going to be two changes that are fundamentally important that are earthquake-shattering to women's experiences after World War I that are going to lead into and, and be a part of this emergence of what we call the new woman. And the first we kind of hinted at already, which is the increasing emancipation of women economically, breaking down the strong gender division of labor that existed in the 19th century. After 1920, more and more women will leave fields like agriculture, will leave fields like domestic service. The idea that you have chambermaids, that you have ladies' maids, that you have 
cooks, that you have, you know, these women, again, doing these sort of very menial jobs in domestic service, more and more of them will move into jobs in a modern economy, moving into manufacturing, moving into the service economy, becoming saleswomen, becoming bank tellers. Now, we're not, again, at complete equality. These women that are working tend to be younger. They tend to be single. Some of them, as soon as they get married, will kind of retire from working life. They will go into that domestic sphere. Many of them will work in sort of lower-level areas as secretaries, as clerks. I mentioned saleswomen, right? So you're not getting the equivalent of a CEO just yet. But women will be working outside the home. The idea that a woman has a job becomes less and less problematic, less and less sort of stereotyped or taboo. Professions that involve cleaning or care or nurturing, right? These sort of things that are linked with what we're seen as already feminine values, those become professions that we really see an explosion of women entering and being involved in. Now, again, while these women are often paid less than their male counterparts, another hugely important part of the story is that they began to become more financially independent. Which is to say, as middle-class Europeans as a whole became wealthier, they began to have this thing called disposable income. Really, up until, for most people, the 1940s, but in, in the case of, of middle and upper middle class families, we're talking about, again, this period of the Great War, most of the money that you take in as a family gets immediately turned around and spent on basic needs. Food, clothing, shelter, and, and people in the 19th and 20th centuries would have said cigarettes actually goes into those basic needs categories. But the result is that you really only have like 5% of your money left over to be able to spend on anything that you want as opposed to things that you say need. Well, in the roaring 20s, the economy is doing well in most European countries. People in these sort of middle or upper middle class jobs, they start to have a little bit of extra money. And women, as the traditional managers of the household and its budget, start to become the people spending that money. They start to become incredibly powerful consumers. Now, there are a lot of stereotypes about women and shopping. You know, you can judge for yourself how true it is. I often think back to this joke from um, the, the movie Train Spotting, where these, these two groups of like, you know, sort of early 20s kids, they're at a bar, they're, they say, okay, we're going to go to the bathroom. And in the bathroom, they all start gossiping about each other and talking about all the things going wrong with their relationships. When they come back, the, the women say to the guys, what are you guys talking about? And the men say, sports. What are you talking about? And the women say, shopping. And they just kind of go, oh, okay, of course, because that's what women do, right? Women talk about shopping. Men talk about sports, right? These are the stereotypes we have. But in the 1920s, this idea of woman as consumer is something new. Partly because being able to buy things is a form of power, and now women, as the domestic heads of the household, start to have some of it. As I said, they're the ones that are going out and deciding what to buy. And they don't just buy things that they need. These women with a little bit of money in their pockets, or in their pocketbooks, they decide to start buying things for themselves. They start to say, I like that hat. I like that perfume. I want to buy that for me. 
And so you have the rise of whole industries that begin to grow up dedicated to the idea of placating women's desires, this desire to consume new goods and services. Think here about something like a department store. We talked about department stores a little bit in our lecture on modernism and architecture, but think about what the experience of a 1920s-era department store is like for a middle-class housewife. It is walking into a clean and bright and, in some cases, electrified and modern building, a palace. And in that palace, you are surrounded by luxury. Even if you go into most department stores today, if you can find them still, you see all the fancy clothes and all the fancy luggage and the perfume counter. And it's just a world of luxury and nice things. And it's easy to imagine. Well, what if I had that? What if I had that? Now, in the 1920s, you don't just walk into the department store and pick what you want. There are, of course, salespeople. These salespeople will wait on the women, and their job is to say, what does that woman want? Let me find it for her. Let me be her servant. Think about the inversion of gender relationships and power going on here. Middle-class woman walks into the department store, the Galerie Lafayette, and everyone is treating her like a princess. These department stores are also full of things like clothing and perfume that allow the woman to display her newfound wealth or status or beauty to the broader public. The 20s woman is not just saying, well, I need a you know, hoop skirt so I can cover myself up and, and hide myself and clothe myself. The 1920s woman is saying, I want to show the world that I am wealthy, that I have some power. I want fancy stuff. I want expensive stuff. And so the mere act of shopping is in itself a kind of performance. When women go by the big windows at the department stores, it's not just for them to look and say, oh, wow, look at that thing. That's beautiful. I love that dress. It's also so other people on the street see those women and say, look, there's a woman who might be able to afford those clothes, who's already wearing some of those clothes. She must be somebody. She must be powerful. So setting aside all the political changes for a moment, what we're starting to see here is women in a position of increasing public economic power in the 1920s. Now, the other big change that we want to mention that occurs during the 1920s and afterwards is a reinterpretation of the institution of marriage. Now, marriage, obviously, there's a lot of that going on today. Marriage is also one of these things where people project back and act like it's always been the same and, you know, go back to, you know, the the ancient Egyptians. Of course, marriage is, is very similar to what it is today. Well, yes, there are some things that might be similar, but there's a lot of things that change over time. And prior to 1900, marriage is still largely seen as an economic institution. Marriage allows people in the chaos of the city to come together, to concentrate resources. It's always easier to to live with a couple people living together instead of just one person living by themselves. Marriage is also performs a social function. 
right? If we're talking about how are we going to raise children, when we lived in villages and farms in the 18th century and, and before that in Europe, it kind of did take a village because there was a village there. Because you had people dying early, because you had all this extended family around, because there was so much work that consumed the people that were able to do the work, because everybody knew each other. But once you get into industrialization, it all gets very chaotic, urbanization, it's very difficult. And so how are we going to really not just have kids physically, but raise kids, teach them? Well, we're going to do that through the institution of the family. And so while obviously people inside of a marriage want to be happy, the ideal of happiness is often secondary, especially in the case of women. The idea that a woman's purpose was to make her man happy was something that was widely accepted in the 19th century. But what about the housewife? There are some authors that talk about this, that think about it. Think about someone like the French novelist Gustave Flaubert, who writes a book called Madame Bovary. It's about this kind of bored housewife who, um, I won't give it away, but it's, it's about her boredom and, and how awful her life is and, and consequences of that. But by the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, we see this growing interest in psychology. And it raises new questions about the importance of happiness within marriage. Which those of you that are married will know, your wife's happiness kind of matters in terms of making the overall relationship work. But if your wife is miserable, if she's unhappy, then chances are your relationship is not going to be successful in the long run. Right? Why do people get divorced so often? Well, it's because one of the partners is miserable. So you start to get in the 1920s a lot of public commentary from social reformers who start to urge couples to spend more time together. If you think about relations between the sexes in the 19th century, what do the kind of people do after dinner, especially upper-class people? They break off by gender. The men go smoke cigars, they go play billiards, they go hunting, they go, you know, to their, their study. And the women go to a different room, a drawing room. And they sip tea and they talk to each other and they do things together. But the idea that you should spend time with your spouse, that's not something that is, is as emphasized as it is today, right? Today, people would say, oh, you want a successful marriage? Date night. Date night's really key. Make sure you spend time with your wife. Make sure you guys can just spend time together with the two of you, because once you start having kids, it gets really crazy. In the 1920s, social reformers start saying wives should take an interest in sports, politics, or business. Another way that you could do this is the idea that, okay, it's nighttime. Maybe the husband and wife should go to the pub together. Instead of one person staying home and one person being public, why don't you both go out? Why don't you both sit down? Why don't you meet up with some friends? Now, this might seem rather obvious to those of us living in the 21st century, but in the beginning of the 20th century, this is rather new. You know, another place that we could mention that's a great place to take your significant other, of course, is the film palace, the movie theater. This is the, the sort of golden age of film when it first breaks out and becomes super popular. And those spaces, they are mixed gendered. It is not just a big crowd of men watching movies. That's something new and technology plays a role in it. So by the end of the 1920s, one can argue that most European marriages are no longer arranged, but most of them are based on love. 
Now, class status matters a lot. You want to be careful about punching too high or too low above whatever your class is. But the idea that you marry someone, it's predicated on the notion that you met, you fell in love, there was some kind of connection. And so this is part and parcel, again, of this larger change to the institution of marriage. Now, another contributing factor to this movement is related to changing conceptions and realities about motherhood as well. Before 1900, most Europeans have large families, and it's not uncommon for them to have miscarriages, stillbirths, or as we talked about, the idea that you would probably lose two or three children after birth, that they would get, you know, scarlet fever or tuberculosis or get hit by a car or a horse carriage or, you know, whatever, starve. The idea that you're going to have a couple children die is not surprising. So again, on small farms, villages, people have as many kids as possible because you know you're going to lose some. But as Europeans became increasingly urban, and as the infant mortality rate declined, what you start to see is that family sizes will shrink. This is partly because you don't need to have seven kids anymore in case a couple die. In fact, the bigger danger is, what if I have seven kids and they all live? How am I going to afford to take care of seven children? Some of you out there are from large families. I, I, can't ima- I have two kids myself. I can't imagine having seven children to take care of, to feed, to clothe, to, to move around, to get you know, to all the various activities, to pay for everything. Now, again, on a farm, this isn't such a big deal because by the time the kid is five or six years old, they can start doing jobs that save labor or that contribute labor. Right? They can feed the chickens. They can get the eggs in the morning. They can pick the produce. But in an urban environment, in an industrial modern economy where you need skills like reading and writing, those children are going to take a lot longer to get to a point where they can become economically contributors. They have to go to school. And the longer the kids are in school, the more they drain family finances. There's some psychological change that happens here as well. And one of the big things is that people become more aware of the emotional role women play and mothers play in raising children. And so they're encouraged not just to be mothers and, okay, here's your kids and you're in charge of the domestic sphere, but to think about your relationship with your child, not as I'm an instructor and that's the person that's just supposed to listen to me all the time, but to think about that relationship in terms of love, in terms of emotional connection. To have those moments, right? We, we call them Kodak moments because it was a great marketing campaign by Kodak. Take a picture of that moment. It's the, the first day of school, your son's first baseball game. Those connections that are emotional, really people start talking about them in the 1920s. Finally, the last major change, and I know I said there were two, it's kind of two and a half because one affects marriage as well. But the last major change that we can talk about is the acknowledgement that women were sexual beings, that women desire sex outside the goal of having children. Now, today, that's probably not such a radical thing to say. During the 19th century, this was seen as a taboo subject. As I mentioned, men are supposed to be authorities, and there's an anxiety that if women are sexual around men, they will make the man kind of lose his train of thought de-rationalize him, and he'll start doing crazy things and making poor decisions, and we can't have that. 
But in the 1920s, the combination of an increased public independence, where women can do things like go to a dance hall without a male chaperone, they can meet a boy there, uh uh-oh, that plus the psychological interest in sex and marriage leads to what one might call an emancipation in this area. Reformers like Theodor Henrik van der Velde argued in works like The Perfect Marriage that having a good sex life for both partners would improve the quality of the marriage. The idea that female eroticism is an important thing, is a good thing, that sex shouldn't just take place when the man is like, all right, I'm, you know, I want to do it. Here's my like 30 seconds. Okay, I'm done. Great. I'm going to sleep. The idea that that's the thinking about what the woman's side of things of that equation are matters and that maybe the man might want to think about something like foreplay, like afterplay, uh, think about, you know, again, not falling asleep immediately, that these were things that, that were key, not just to kind of people on the margins and weirdos, but people that are in ordinary marriages that just want to be happy. Now, feminists also began to call for increasing equality in terms of social expectations around sex, arguing that it was perfectly fine for women to have sex outside of marriage. After all, for men, the idea of having an affair had been socially acceptable for a long time. And really, it's only in the early 2000s that there really starts to be a real taboo around this. I remember when uh, Bill Clinton got caught having an affair in uh, 1998, And uh, I was living in France with a French family at the time. And they were like, what's the problem? What's the big deal? Of course, he's a man. He's a politician. He's a powerful man. Uh, Of course, he's having an affair. So it's only really very recently, the Me Too movement, that 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 idea has started to be uh, really pushed back against in popular society. Last part that goes into this kind of recipe, if you will, as to why the idea of women having sex outside of marriage becomes more socially acceptable, you obviously have more contraception, even in countries where it is technically banned or prohibited. Right? If you are a man having sex outside of marriage and you impregnate a woman, you just walk away from it, is what happens, unfortunately, in too many cases. If you're a woman and you have sex outside of marriage and you get pregnant, well, now you're stuck with the kid. Right, you face some very real consequences for that. But as we have the invention of condoms and they begin to be mass-produced, as we have the invention of things like the diaphragm, you start to see the idea that sex outside of wedlock is less dangerous. Finally, it's worth noting that this revolution in sexuality occurred against the backdrop of modernity. The public authorities, who had most pushed back on the idea of sex outside of wedlock, or who had most condemned the idea that you should be having sex for pleasure, authorities like the church had been greatly weakened by the experience of the war itself. One last thing just to throw out there, we also have all these new technologies like film, like jazz, like dance halls, and so sexuality is increasingly coming into the public eye. Whether it's looking at a beautiful man or a beautiful woman on a film, you know, going to see Gone with the Wind, and wow, you know, that person's so attractive. Whether it's seeing the body, not necessarily having sex, but just seeing the body in dances, whether it's feeling that sense of emotional liberation through something like jazz, it really connects to the soul, the passions. Sexuality just seems to be more in the public eye in the 1920s and 30s. And so again, while it's not the 1960s, 
the 1920s witnesses some pretty profound changes in terms of gender and sexuality. Of course, dramatic cultural changes often produce a backlash, as I've said before, and the same could be said for the new woman ideal of the 1920s. For every person who celebrated women's newfound equality, there were probably more who felt anxiety about what such changes might mean for them. Now, I know looking at it from the modern perspective, it's easy to label these people as misogynist, patriarchal, or to dismiss them in their views. But first off, plenty of these people were women, right? The number one person in your life that is probably teaching you as a young woman what expectations about gender are is not your dad or your brother. It's your mother or it's your grandmother. So women themselves are a part of this system regardless of whether or not they tend to be what many people would say were victims of it as well. Second, put yourself in the mindset of someone from the period. For centuries, femininity and motherhood had been closely tied together. And now someone was suggesting that women could choose not to be mothers, that they could place their own happiness and well-being above the duty to reproduce. Well, what does that mean for European society? especially in an era of falling birth rates after a devastating war. And what did the new woman mean for men? Many contemporaries expressed anxiety. Anxiety about sex and courtship because now there were new rules to a game that previously the man is supposed to know. Imagine you are in some sort of high-stakes card game, right? Your life savings are on the line. It's some version of poker, right? You're in Las Vegas and you put all your money in. And then you realize in the middle of this nightmare, oh shit, I don't actually know the rules to the game. I'm supposed to know it. My family's livelihood depends upon it. My honor depends upon it. My sort of psychological self-esteem depends upon winning this game and being a master of it. But I don't actually know what I'm supposed to do anymore. So again, while it's easy to say, well, too bad for the guy, you know, they're clearly the, have the advantage here. In reality, the man also suffers from this, or the man also experienced these transformations with anxiety. Because again, he's not in charge anymore. He's facing a lot of pressure because he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be the authority, and yet now all of a sudden he's not sure if he is anymore. As the German commentator Axel Egebrecht noted, Quote, today, when a man comes together with a woman, he has no idea where this meeting will lead him. He doesn't know how far his own prowess extends, whether to fleeting excitement or continual fascination. End quote. In a world that men were expected to control, this loss of control was deeply problematic because men weren't supposed to suffer from anxiety. To be an anxious man was to be condemned as weak, to be unmanly. And there's no precedent for this either. So again, it's not surprising that you have a lot of people as they experience the new woman that come out sort of against it, that are critical of it, or that are sort of suspicious of it. Finally, there is again this very real fear of what the consequence could be for so much sex outside of marriage. Actions that could and did lead to more children born out of wedlock. Given the central role that the family played in 19th century bourgeois culture, again, you're talking about the potential disruption of the most basic building blocks of European society. 
being 100 years on the other side of that, I think most of us would say, well, yeah, okay, it's not, it's not so bad. The world hasn't ended because women are having sex outside of marriage. Because some women are growing up saying, you know what, actually, I don't want to become a mom. But people didn't know this at the start of the 20th century when the new woman first emerges. Okay, so far we've talked in generalities about this new woman, and of course this is partly because it's a phenomenon that is much more talked about or written about than it is the lived experience for women in the 1920s. Most women in the 1920s in Europe still kind of living the traditional gender expectations, still thinking about their lives and their destinies in terms of, I want to become a mother one day, that's my purpose in life. It's not to try to become a CEO or be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, or you know something like that. However, I do want to give you a concrete example of someone that one might call a representative of the new woman. And I mean here the French fashion designer and businesswoman Coco Chanel. Gabrielle Bonheur Chanel was born in 1883 to an itinerant family. Her father was a kind of semi-nomadic street vendor, something that's actually not that uncommon in the 19th century. And her mother was a laundry maid. So she comes from this kind of poor background. Really, the only skill that she acquires is the ability to sew. But that ability allows her to get a job working in a cabaret where she hopes to become a singer or a dancer or some kind of, you know, star of the stage. Unfortunately for Coco Chanel, she does not have a particularly good singing voice. She is not particularly impressive as a dancer. And so unlike someone like Josephine Baker, who also has sort of similar kind of rough, poor origins, but, but sort of socially ascends very quickly, the way that Chanel will begin to move up the social ladder is sort of one of the oldest tricks in the book, which is to say she starts having affairs with wealthy men. The first of these men was a former French cavalry officer named Etienne Balsan. And then when he kind of tires of her, she shacks up with one of his friends, uh, an English captain named Arthur Boy Capel. Now, both men kind of embrace this idea of the new woman. They're less worried about the idea of class, and they shower affection on her. It's not just that she's a kind of concubine and, you know, okay, I'm just going to kind of treat you like a slave. They like her as a companion. They give her attention. They give her wealth. They invite her to parties. And so she kind of lives this 1920s flapper lifestyle that many of the critics of the new woman were often complaining about, right? Here's a woman having multiple sexual partners. Here's a woman having a lot of sex outside of marriage. Here's a woman not thinking about motherhood. Funded by both of her lovers in different uh, periods, she basically opens a hat shop in Paris in 1910. And there's a, a very famous French actress from the theater that comes in and buys one of the hats and, you know, becomes all the rage in Paris. And so she kind of makes a, an initial breakthrough with this hat shop. By 1913, Chanel had her first boutique. And in 1919, after World War I, she opens her first Maison de Coutre in Paris. Now, what makes Chanel such a big deal? Why do we know Coco Chanel? Okay, you know about the, the perfume maybe, but, but how does she really break through big time? Well, one of the things that's fascinating about her is that her style becomes symbolic of the post-war era. It is inspired by the idea of constraints from the war years, the idea that less is more. 
And so she gets rid of so much of the overtop and unnecessary elements that had long dominated women's fashion. You think about pre-World War I or even late 19th century women's fashion, we're talking about the big hoop skirts. We're talking about whalebones, you know, going back to the middle of the 19th century. Whalebone skirts. What the, you know, why would you want that? How could you sit down? Sometimes the skirts are so big, how do you move from room to room? Chanel prizes simplicity. She says, in the post-war era, the idea is that women should be comfortable. Women should be free-flowing. Let's get rid of that corset thing that makes all these women faint and it's very uncomfortable. Let's move to a fashion that enables women to be more public. Right? If you have to wear a corset, you're limited in the number of places you can go and things you can do. You're not going to go run a marathon wearing a corset. Not if you want to finish the marathon. But starting in the 1920s, led in part by her fashion, people, especially women, begin to become and embrace the idea of being sporty and active and, again, public. Chanel is one of the first to popularize the horizontally striped shirt for women, as well as bell-bottom pants and crew-neck sweaters. But her most important contribution to fashion, one could argue, was the invention of the little black dress in 1912, which became popular in the 1920s after it was published, or an image of it was published, in Vogue magazine in the United States. By 1919, Chanel was already a star in the world of fashion design, but the explosion of interest in perfume at the end of the war, which this is kind of funny, it's, uh, it's greatly spurred on by the fact that you have two million American soldiers in Paris or around Paris, and they're going to go home because the war is over. Well, what are they going to bring home with them? What's well, a perfect little souvenir to bring home to your wife or your girlfriend or your sister or your mom? Well, in 1919, it's perfume. It's French perfume, because the French are the masters of perfume and fashion. And so there is this explosion in the perfume industry that happens in 1919 because of all these American GIs there. Coco Chanel is not someone who spends a lot of time thinking about intellectual pursuits, but she is very clever. She has her sense on the pulse of the people, and she realizes very quickly, this is a, a big hit. I need my own fragrance. And so she starts working with a French-Russian chemist named Ernst Beau. And they start experimenting. And in 1921, they release the first version of the famed Chanel Number no. 5. Now, there's a lot of stories as to why it's called Chanel Number no. 5. The most credible, in my opinion, is basically this guy Beau came up with a number of synthetic uh, sort of mixes. And basically, the, the fifth batch was the one that uh, Coco Chanel liked the most. Now, it is true that she also liked the number five as well, and so that may have played some role in it as well. At any rate, her fragrance became an instant hit and quickly became a symbol of the new era of the Roaring Twenties. To grow production in 1924, she partnered with the Wertheimer brothers and a Frenchman named Theophile Bader, who was the founder of the Galerie Lafayette department stores. And so basically she said, I will give you guys 90% of the company, you can use my name, you do all the kind of work with marketing and manufacturing and all that. Uh, I'll just hang on to my 10% of the company. So this arrangement worked fantastically, and the company prospered, and Chanel Number no. 5, of course, became globally recognized. Now, some of you might be aware that there is also a darker side to the Chanel story. 
um, that I'm just going to touch on very briefly here. The short version is that the Wertheimer brothers were Jewish, and after 1940, when the collaborationist Vichy regime comes to power in France, they passed a series of laws called Aryanization laws. Basically, Aryanization laws said no Jewish person could own an enterprise. It had to all be owned by, the, uh, by, by Christians or Aryan families. So in this hostile environment, Chanel tries to take control of this company. She would say re-control the company because it's got her name on it, but she really wasn't doing a lot of the um, day-to-day work, one could argue, as well. At any rate, she tries to kind of steal the company back, if you will, but unluckily for her, or luckily for the Wertheimers, they had already transferred its European holdings to a Christian friend and moved a bunch of the corporate assets to New Jersey. So she never actually reclaims the company, uh, but she did try to. At the same time, while Chanel is not overtly political, she is someone that likes having affairs with men, and she strikes up an affair with a prominent German officer stationed in Paris. Later, after her death, documents are discovered that show that she was, in fact, an active German spy during World War II. Now, she's never actually punished for this, although she does kind of live in exile in Switzerland for about 10 years after the war. She goes on to have something of a rapprochement with uh, Pierre Wertheimer. They kind of bury the hatchet, and he partially finances her comeback in 1954. Chanel would die in early 1971, honored at her funeral by the luminaries of the fashion industry, as well as socialites such as the Jewish heiress Marie-Hélène de Rothschild, so basically the heiress from the Rothschild family, and Pablo Picasso, the famous Spanish painter. In a lot of ways, Chanel, of course, then embodies this idea of the new woman. She lives for herself. She's an ambitious and hardworking social riser. She makes a fortune by selling luxury consumer goods and in turn became a great consumer of those same goods. She had multiple lovers over the course of her lifetime. She did not seem particularly concerned with whether they were married. And she herself, of course, never actually married or became a mother or had children. Of course, small thing, she had short hair for most of her life. So, like Monique Lerbier that we started the podcast with, Chanel charted her own course in the world, becoming powerful and independent in a way that would have been largely unthinkable just a generation earlier. Okay, that concludes this episode of History Off the Page. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love your support. You can follow us on social media. We're now on Instagram or you can check out our website, www.historyoffthepage. I should say, too, that we are technically on Twitter. Um, I've had kind of a love-hate relationship with Twitter because every time I I feel like I'm about ready to invest a lot of energy into it, Elon Musk changes the terms of Twitter, changes the way it works, changes the functionality of it. And so I, I keep not being sure if I really want to invest a lot of effort in Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, you can follow us. You might see us there. If you're not, don't worry about it. Check out Instagram where we're a lot more active. You can also support us via Patreon. Uh, We have a Buzzsprout website as well that has a subscribe button where you can help us out by sending us $3 a month. You can also check out our Chipdar on uh, on Venmo, uh, which you can find the link to on our website, www.historyoffthepage.com. Just want to say a big shout out, a big thanks to those of you who are already supporting us. Um, As I've mentioned before, there are some 
expenses related to this podcast, have to pay for hosting the files, have to pay for the recording software. So um, I am just so, so grateful to your support. Um, you've really helped make this podcast possible and allowed it to continue now into a third year. Okay, sorry to go on about that stuff. Um, I hate doing it, but it's, uh, it's obviously necessary to keep history off the page afloat. In our next episode, we're going to talk about the rise of sexual identities, and basically the way in which homo and heterosexuality becomes not just a sort of idea of behavior or preference, but becomes an actual identity. The idea of saying that you are gay or straight, right? This, this didn't exist in the same way really before 1900. So we're going to unpack that. We're going to see how these, these changes happen. And that will be the last of our episodes, I promise, I swear, related to this question of modernity in the 1920s. After that, I promise you several episodes on fascism. We're going to start with Italy and Mussolini's seizure of power, and we're going to go all the way up through the Nazis, and I'm sure it will be very interesting to um, all of you. That's all for now. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you next time as we take history off the page.